Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness audio cast newsletter for the week of October 10th, 2022. This is issue number 43. This week, we're going to talk about COVID quick hits, autism, and the recipe of the week will be at the end. The free thoughts are this from Marcus Aurelius. If it is not right, do not do it. If it is not true, do not say it. And from my world, I like this statement. If the children do not benefit, I don't want to talk about it. When it comes to the government or a business, the mantra should be to benefit of the children, and that is all. With coronavirus, overall, North Carolina is in a good place, as well as most of the United States. There is no multi-inflammatory syndrome cases in pediatrics in our clinic in the last at least a year. North Carolina has roughly 4% of admitted patients needing a ventilator and 12% needing an ICU bed for COVID. This has been static for months now. Seven-day moving average, if we can even trust it anymore, is in the low 40,000 range. Let's talk now about the new variants. So Omicron U.S. strains, as of late September data, noted that BA.4 is at 1%, BA.4.6 was at 14%, BF.7 was at 5% and BA.5 was at 79%. So BA4.6 and BF.7 are mildly gaining ground against BA.5. That's quite interesting as to be more infectious than BA.5 was something I would not have expected, but always expect the unexpected when it comes to COVID. Apparently, BF.7 has mutations in the spike in nucleotide regions of the RNA genome, giving it potential for both infectiousness and immune evasion. Time will tell. No higher level of morbidity has been noted with any of the variants of concern, even the emerging ones. For Monica Gandhi recently in her email, she says, quote, however, such a short interval is not optimal. If we are aiming for a robust fall-winter long protection and could also be counter this could also be counterproductive the cdc should recommend a 6 month interval between a previous booster or infection naturally and the new updated vaccine for healthy adults for two primary reasons updated immunological studies and recognition that millions of americans had post vaccination infection with omicron variants this year and thereby have strong current protection against reinfection with ba.5 end quote okay Quick hit number one, quote, the FDA and the CDC both approved the updated bivalent COVID-19 vaccines last week. The promise of the mRNA vaccine technology platform was always that we could update them quickly. We may finally have achieved an advantage over SARS-CoV-2 as the updated vaccine recipe matches the current dominant circulating BA.5 strain. Without another more transmissible variant of concern yet on the horizon. However, we are concerned that the CDC may again be missing the boat with its recommendations on timing for when most American adults should receive the booster. Following the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices meeting on September 1st, the CDC stated that adults who completed the primary vaccination series are eligible for the updated booster if it's been at least two months since the previous vaccine. They advised those who recently had an infection to wait three months before getting boosted. However, such a short interval is not optimal if we are aiming for robust fall winter long protection and could also be counterproductive. The CDC should recommend a six-month interval between a previous booster and infection and the new updated vaccine for healthy adults, and that's what we should be looking for. 
This comes to us from D-A-I-G-N-A-U-L-T et al., which concludes Monica Gandhi, 2022. For me, this makes complete sense and is the really the process that we should be and I am engaged in. If you've been recently infected, that changes the narrative on when your next vaccine should come, and especially if your health risk is very low. Number two, from The Lancet, 258,000 SARS-CoV-2 tests were done during the study period. Pre-Omicron, primary infection was associated with a 38% reduction in BA.2 infection risk, with higher BA.2 protection against those who had received 156%, 2, 69%, or 3, 70% mRNA vaccine doses. Omicron BA.1 primary infection was associated with greater protection against BA.2 infection reduction of 72%. And protection was increased further among those who had received two doses of the mRNA vaccine, 96%, but was not improved with the third dose. Healthcare workers who had received two doses of mRNA vaccine and had previous BA.1 infection were subsequently well protected for a prolonged period against BA.2 reinfection, with a third vaccine dose conferring no improvement to hybrid protection. If this protection also pertains to future variants, there may be limited benefit from additional vaccine doses for people with hybrid immunity, depending on timing and variant and their risk. Carazzo et al. 2022, C-A-R-A-Z-O. This is, again, more evidence that we need to individualize this process of vaccination over time. Risk remains the greatest reason to vaccinate often, i.e. your personal risk, health risk. Number three, results of a recent study suggest that more than half of adults with recent Omicron variant infection were unaware that they were infected. 56% of the infected individuals were unaware. J-O-U-N-G, Jung et al., 2022. This study shows us that in general, two things are happening. One, people are having very mild illness now in general when they have been vaccinated and or had prior illness with Omicron SARS-2. And two, people are not testing if they have mild symptoms. Only 10% of the positive infected individuals had symptoms, which were more consistent with the common cold. Number four, if you had prior infection with SARS-2, Omicron BA.1, then you are 75% protected from BA.5 or other variants, according to a new report in the New England Journal of Medicine. This study came out of Portugal, where the BA.5 variant has been active for a while, multiple studies reinforcing the number two discussion above. This comes to us from Malato, M-A-L-A-T-O, et al., 2022. Number five, in a fascinating report in Nature, we see severe acute respiratory distress syndrome Coronavirus 2 caused the pandemic of COVID-19, in part because of its ability to effectively suppress host cell responses. Previous research has shown us that viral proteins can dampen antiviral responses by mimicking critical regions of human histone proteins, particularly those containing post-translational modifications requiring post, excuse me, requiring translational and transcriptional regulation. In other words, the SARS-2 virus can act like an epigenetic modifier changing protein production in our cells. In this study, we see that SARS-CoV-2 protein encoding for by ORF8 functions as a histone mimic of the ARKS motifs in histone H3 to disrupt host cell epigenetic regulation. Deletion of either the ORF8 gene or the histone mimic site attenuates the ability of the SARS-CoV-2 to disrupt host cell chromatin, affects the transcriptional response to infection, and attenuates viral genome copy number. These findings demonstrate a new function of ORF8 and a mechanism through which SARS-CoV-2 disrupts host cell epigenetic regulation. Further, 
This work provides a molecular basis for the finding that SARS-CoV-2 lacking ORF8 is associated with decreased severity of COVID-19. This comes just from Key et al. 2022. So for me, this is yet another piece of the puzzle as to why some people fare worse than others against the virus. In the future, folks with the ORF8 susceptibility should be prioritized for risk stratification because the proteins aren't being made appropriately in this region, allowing the epigenetic modulation to occur that puts people at higher risk for a poor outcome and more disease severity. All right, some non-COVID research here, number six. In a very important piece of research, we see a connection between dairy-based casein proteins and the myelin proteins of the nervous system of the brain. From the article, we read, multiple sclerosis is the most prevalent autoimmune disease of the central nervous system leading to irreversible deficits in young adults. Its pathophysiology is believed to be influenced by environmental determinants. As far back as the 1990s, it has been suggested that there's a correlation between the consumption of cow's milk and the prevalence of MS. Here, we not only demonstrate that a high percentage of MS patients harbor antibodies to bovine casein, the protein that's in cow milk, but also the antibody cross-reactivity between cow's milk and the CNS, central nervous system antigens, that can exacerbate demyelination that makes us see the disease MS. Our data broaden the current understanding of how diet influences etiology of MS and set the stage for combining personalized diet plans with disease-modifying treatment strategies. Chandra et al. 2022. All right, folks, that's a critical study. We see a biomarker linking cow milk and dairy consumption to the autoimmune attack on the myelin sheath proteins of the nerves that conduct electrical impulses across distances. The damage to them is part of the pathophysiology to multiple sclerosis. Finally, we are getting concrete evidence that diet interventions can and will alter the phenotypic outcome of a disease. The next shoe to drop will be gluten proteins and maybe more. I have been personally avoiding gluten and dairy for quite a long time with the occasional cheat when I have some gluten-free pizza. And I have felt better in the last 10 years than the previous 10. And that's increasing in age. So every time I see data like this, it makes me think if I'm at a predisposed risk to multiple sclerosis, it is nice to know that I'm probably giving myself a head start on not ever developing this disease. If there is MS risk in your family lineage, pay attention to this study. Number seven. Microplastics are finding their way into our foods, especially marine life, and now in our lungs. From a recent study, we see that microplastics are defined as plastic particles between one micrometer and five millimeters in size. They have been found in the environment from marine and freshwater bodies to soil to food to drinking water and finally in the air. Other studies have demonstrated that humans are being exposed to higher concentrations of microplastics within their homes or outdoor areas of high human activity. This comes from Jenner et al. 2022. The question remains, how bad are they for us if they find their way into our lungs, GI tract, or cells? This current study demonstrated that of the 13 samples tested, the lung tissue of 11 had elevated levels of MPs in them. If they are there, will they harm us? The immune system is loath to allow a foreign product to exist within us, so for me, it will inflame and kill. The long-term effect of this reality remains to be seen. For me, I, I just I see no value in a microplastic in our body. So again, until the science proves it to be bad, I consider it to be bad. A quick Google search, microplastics in the lungs and immune responses, leads to many articles discussing risk of lung cancers and other disorders. 
Mind you, these are not proven yet. These are all hypothetical speculations. It appears that the innate immune system can eat the plastics, but has a hard time clearing them, leading to local inflammation. This is likely not good long-term. So the end result of all this is avoid microplastics where you can. The tricky part is no one has a good answer on what to do in order to reduce plastic use. That has not happened societally or globally. For me, the answer is more in line with keeping a robust immune system to control the possible inflammatory response. We have discussed that a ton in the past, over the past two years. Section two, autism is an immune-related disorder. Quote, summary of immune evidence in autism spectrum disorder is immune dysregulation causing or contributing to these disorders, question mark. Immune findings in individuals with ASD have grown from a scant few early studies to a plethora of extensive and varied research showing immune dysfunction that contributes to worsened behaviors. Familial autoimmunity is a common finding within families affected by ASD. In addition, individuals with ASD have significant immune dysregulation that contribute to altered behaviors. These individuals also suffer more so than the general population from immune-mediated comorbidities such as allergies, asthma, and gastrointestinal disturbances. Mechanistically, studies have shown that the gestational immune environment must be delicately balanced, and without such balance, neurodevelopment can be altered. Whether these immune characteristics are causal or just sequelae of the overarching disorders remains to be determined. However, the evidence is building that this regulated immune response may be pathologically contributed to autism spectrum disorder. Quote, Hughes et al. 2022. I am putting my early eggs in this basket as it makes the most sense to me. The, mater- the maternal child interface is the place where this dysfunction is occurring. This is in the womb and not afterward with the exception of some rare cases of genetic regressive diseases like Rett syndrome. The immune milieu of the maternal corpus is likely the ground zero for inflammation that is leading to the phenotype that is autism. This is a tricky possible truth as it has maternal guilt of health tied to it. We shall not and cannot judge a woman, but we must follow the data wherever it takes us. The increased prevalence of familial maternal autoimmunity coupled to early findings of maternal autoantibodies targeting pathways of the child's brain are the best evidence of a part of this causation. There are many other factors at play, including abnormal bacterial GI microbiomes, changes in innate and inflammatory pathways with elevated cytokine levels and more. The change from 1 in 10,000 children 50 years ago to 1 in 40 now being autistic is proof that this is an issue that is not genetic in nature so much as it is environmental primarily. Thus, our work needs to focus on maternal and child immune solvency. Section three is the recipe of the week. It's Hawaiian poke by Emeril Lagasse. The dish is beautiful, nice peanut flavor with little heat. Fresh fish is a lovely way to feed your brain. The recipe is in the newsletter as always. All right, folks. That's it for this week. The song of the week is Flower Power by Greta Van Fleet, an amazing band. Love them. And, uh, you know, just again, as always, keep yourself immune solvent. Avoid that which can cause you harm, especially in the world of COVID. Love your kids. Hug your kids every single day. And have a lovely day. Enjoy the sun. And now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this 
audio cast newsletters for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Thank you.